You're listening to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. Visit our website for free resources to aid you in your pursuit of self-liberation. Old Vanu publications, podcasts, guest articles, and much more. Go to vanupodcast.com. And now, your hosts, Shane and Jason. Welcome to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to coercion. I'm your host, Shane, coming to you from the homestead, my pocket of freedom here in Southern Illinois. Uh, this podcast, everything found on the website, unless otherwise noted, is covered by Bibcot's no government license, as well as reuse and modification to anyone except for governments and the bludgies thereof. Learn more by visiting bibcot.org. So I don't have the next episode in our Timber Autonomous Zone series ready to go yet, uh, but I think I've got a relevant substitute for you today. As I discussed last week uh, at Libertarian Tech Publications, we've been busy, uh, hard at work, uh, getting audiobooks completed and released to the public. I've currently got three submitted to Amazon, uh, ACX, but they're all pending audio reviews still. And uh, I think, yeah, Bonnie Book 2, was, was, uh, I put that up on January 26th. So um, they are very, very behind, and they didn't even give me an estimate. So uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to see. But, uh, yeah, hopefully soon they'll be available for purchase uh, on Audible, iTunes, uh, Amazon, etc., in the meantime, you can catch the audiobooks for Vani Book 2 and Going Mobile for free uh, on my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Liberty Under Attack, and we'll probably uh, release them on the podcast feed uh, sometime here in the near future as well. The most recently completed and uh, probably the most requested audiobook or book in general is a Second Realm Book on Strategy, again narrated by Silas S. Soul. I don't have the link for the full audio version yet, uh, but we'll make sure to include a link to the free PDF and paperback versions uh, in the show notes, or you can just go to libertyandertack.com and uh, snag a paperback copy of it uh, today. And uh, in regards to our series on Tazis, uh, the strategy of building second realms is hyper-relevant. You'll certainly glean some insight from Smuggler and XYZ on the topic uh, in this brief teaser. Anyway, before I turn you over to that, I want to provide an update on what I've been up to, uh, the homestead, and something revelatory I learned this past week uh, that I think is uh, quite pertinent to Vanu. Uh, yeah, I guess a helpful Vanu hack to achieve nutrition uh, while also living frugally. And uh, if you've been following me on Instagram, uh, you're uh, well aware of uh, <laughs> what I'm going to be discussing. But uh, anyway... So it's still winter here, and uh, so not much has happened on the homestead this year, other than beginning the plans for this coming spring. So yeah, last year was a complete failure. I uh, lost all the chickens in an attempt to uh, free range, uh, free range them. Yeah, it didn't work out. Um, and uh, also, I guess just due to the sheer cheap cost of eggs, uh, I wasn't going to do chickens again. Uh, but after my continued deep dive into health, uh, raising chickens, chickens myself uh, gives me the ability to control their diet, and uh, therefore I can control their omega-3 to 6 ratios, uh, as well as just increase the overall vitamins and nutrients uh, in the eggs. So it's totally worth doing, and uh, you know it's, it's cheap to do. It doesn't take a whole lot of work, uh, really. You know, every couple of weeks, go out there and you know, pick up their shit, um, you know, clean up a little bit after them. Um, basically, uh, you know, water, uh, you know, food and water every couple few days. Um, once you have a you know, more efficient uh, you know, feeding system rather than just you know, going out there and doing it manually. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, totally worth doing, um, and I, I guess especially so since I, have, uh, since I already have the Taj Makoop. Uh, so, yeah, the previous owners left. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a really nice, really nice, really large chicken coop. So, um, yeah, no reason not to. No reason not to. Um, now, I haven't eaten a vegetable uh, since, like, September of last year, so I'm definitely not going to do a garden, uh, nor am I going to do the full permaculture farm uh, I was thinking about, which, in part, guys, I'm actually kind of relieved because, um, you know, I talked to, we, I, I've, I've talked to Jamin McConick about it on a podcast a number of times, and, uh, you know, while I, I think it's, uh, you know, 
fantastic. Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, it is so, so much work to get started. And um, I would have to basically do a deep dive into agriculture um, and farming, um, <laughs> uh, you know, just kind of like what I've been doing with health over the past, I guess, six months or so. So yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a relief. It was uh, something I was uh, you know, kind of a daunting, uh, you know, some, definitely daunting. I do plan on having cows, though, uh, you know, maybe a couple of yaks and maybe some goats, lambs in the next year or two. So there's plenty of prep work to do for that. And uh, yeah, that needs to happen sooner rather than later. Grass, grass-fed beef is fucking expensive uh, if, you haven't, uh, <laughs> if you haven't ever looked at the prices. So yeah, onto these two awesome hacks uh, I've learned recently that could be of value to the frugal uh, and maybe even health-conscious Vanuin. So I'm sure many of you have seen plenty of hype about intermittent fasting and uh, time-restricted feeding. Uh, these words are really synonyms and consist of an individual only eating within a certain time window every day uh, or regularly restricting calories. Uh, so for example, John could do one meal a day on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 p.m. And on Tuesday and Thursday, he might eat as much as he wanted, uh, wanted within a six-hour window. Um, this would be known as an 18-6 intermittent fast. Uh, well, if a Vanuin is able to consume less food by only eating within said six-hour window, they could save money on food or buy, high, high, or buy higher quality food um, with the savings. Uh, this is, of course, compared to the three meals a day plus constant snacking in the survival society um, while never really achieving the, the uh, nutrition that humans need. And quite frankly, that's why the snacking is, uh, that's why there's so much food consumed, uh, you know, constantly throughout the day is because, <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, energy-dense food, but not nutritious nutritious food. So uh, you got to consume a lot of energy to get uh, to get even somewhat close to the to the uh, you know the the daily necessary nutrition. Furthermore, the ability to fast without thinking about it could come in clutch. Uh, if a Vanuin is forced into a homelessness situation and won't have access to food for a day or two, they'll be much better suited to survive if they aren't stuck in a refined carbohydrate addiction. Um, and those foods do hack your brain, guys. Um, specifically, your satiety signals, uh, which leads to overeating, energy toxicity, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and a whole other plethora of problems. So, yeah, that's number one. I mean, for me personally, I did 20, 20, uh, you know, 24 intermittent fasting for three to four months. Um and, you know, I just, after, after basically, I don't remember exactly how long, but maybe after a few days or a week, um, after I was uh, fat adapted, or I guess a couple few weeks for, for fat adapted, maybe even a month. But, uh, yeah, after, uh, after I was fat adapted, uh, you know, fasting for 20 hours is nothing. Um, don't even have to think about it. Uh, which is crazy because I used to, I, I mean, I, I yeah, type one diabetes. I used to have to, I, I was told I had to eat every basically two or three hours, uh, you know, consume, you know, 40 or 50 carb- grams of carbohydrates every, you know, three or four hours um, to make sure my blood sugar didn't drop. So it's a drastic change. So yeah, I mentioned that I, uh, I, I did 20, uh, 20 hours and four hours intermittent, or I guess 20, 20 hours fasting, four hours eating window uh, intermittent fasting for three to four months now. And uh, now that I'm working out daily and I've lost most of what little fat I had, uh, I have to eat a little more to prevent my body from breaking down skeletal muscle uh, for energy. So maybe, uh, so say maybe an 18-6 with two big meals daily, but uh, I can easily go 24 hours. The second hack is basically an extension uh, to the carnivore diet I've been on. Uh, that is exclusively animal products. No vegetables, fruits, grains, carbs, uh, etc. Well, I guess carbs outside of the three and a half grams that are in, uh, in beef liver. But um, yeah, it's called nose to tail, uh, eating the entirety of different animals, uh, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, whole fish, uh, you know, sardines, whole salmon, um, beef organs, uh, etc. When I started carnivore, I could, I just couldn't do beef liver. Um, <laughs> couldn't do beef liver and uh, didn't even really try with, with any other organs. But, uh, you know, I did try liver a few times. And yeah, I... <laughs> I'd heard it touted as a superfood, and uh, that you know if you're going to be on a carnivore diet um, and you're not going to be consuming, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables, 
then you need to make sure you get those uh, those other nutrients that are in, that are in beef liver. So yeah, I've heard it touted as a superfood, but the flavor is just too much. Uh, just too much. Didn't doesn't taste like beef. Um, well, in the past couple of weeks, uh, I've been working in beef liver daily. Um, I'd say probably one to two ounces, uh, two times a day, in, it, in addition to other organs, uh, tongue, heart, oxtail, etc. Um, and I guess one note on that, uh, just uh, you know, further research, because you know I'm always uh, you know consuming more information um, and always uh, you know updating my my action based on that new information. Um, but yeah, as far as uh, you know, eating beef liver daily, apparently you know you do that for a few weeks or a month, no problem at all. Um, but uh, you know it's such an it's such a nutrient dense food that unless you're nutrient deficient, um, you don't need to eat it every single day. Um, I think I think uh, the recommendation I've heard is like a pound a week. And at this rate, um, over the past week, if I'm eating yeah, two ounces, uh, you know, two, I guess two to four ounces a day. Yeah. That's definitely more, <laughs> that's, uh, definitely more, uh, maybe even, you know, pound and a half, two pounds of, uh, of beef liver. So, um, anyway, just, uh, just a note there. Um, not only, uh, you know, is the entire animal and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking here, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, eating the entirety of the animal again, but, uh, yeah, not only is the entire animal going to have a balanced nutritional profile crafted by evolution over thousands upon thousands of years, but the nu- nutrients available in these organs is quite spectacular. Uh, as a few examples, it's estimated that 40% of Americans are deficient in vitamin B12, in addition to some proteins and nutrients only found or really bioavailable uh, in animal foods. Uh, in terms of B12, uh, every single uh, every single cell in your body needs it, uh, from the formation of red blood cells to regulating energy production. So yeah, if you've got uh, chronic fatigue and you're tired all the time, maybe look into a B12 deficiency. So that's certainly positive. Uh, for me personally, I've noticed that uh, I've been eating less food overall. Um, actually, dropped a few pounds, which I, I mean, I've been, I've been building muscle, and uh, I, I guess I've, I've been eating quite a bit. So I, I guess I haven't really been losing, losing weight, um, uh, losing additional weight. But uh, yeah, I've been, I've been, yeah, losing a little weight because I've been eating less food overall, uh, leading me to believe that I was definitely nutri- uh, nutrient deficient in at least a few aspects. Um, I noticed another slight rise in energy level as well. Um, in addition to just feeling, feeling even better, which I, I, I didn't think was really possible. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible, but, um, yeah, improvements, more improvements. But, uh, anyway, uh, and the best part about say beef organs, well, <laughs> hardly anyone eats them. I'm sure you don't. And, uh, so, I mean, you can snag them for just a couple dollars a pound. Um, like I had uh, a yeah, beef heart and, uh, yeah, beef heart and beef liver. I mean, what, you know, basically $2 a pound. And, uh, you know, this is just the, it's super, super nutrient dense food. It's, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, it's, you know, cer- certainly a lot cheaper than, uh, you know, $10, uh, $10 plus per pound grass fed muscle meat. So, and just to, I, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure uh, some of you are curious about, uh, about the taste of, uh, organs. So yeah, as I said, beef liver does not taste like beef. Um, but as far as, uh, oxtail, um, beef tongue, beef heart, um, all of those have just essentially tasted like beef. Um, the heart was, uh, was a lot less fatty. Um, but yeah, like, uh, uh, the, uh, the beef tongue, um, is very much, uh, very much, very much just like a chuck roast. So yet yeah, flavor, it just tastes like beef. <laughs> just tastes like beef. Um, for those interested in this sort of thing, what are some strategies to achieve, uh, I guess, uh, optimal nutrition while also living frugally? Uh, first off, contact local animal processors and see if they have any organs or spare animal parts to be willing to sell in addition to local farmers that you may know. Uh, they might give them to you for free or for cheap, uh, whereas you'd pay out the ass to some delivery service. So in the next couple of days, I'll be uh, heading to a packing plant, a nearby packing plant. Uh, they've got a you know, retail where they sell uh, grass-fed beef and, and organs. And uh, so I've I found a really really good uh, you know, local packing plant here, um, where I'll have easy easy cheap access. Um, so that's that's great. I was a little little concerned, uh, I was certainly a little concerned. 
But uh, yeah, I also put my dog on a raw meat diet um, rather than uh, really doggy cereal is all it is. It's just doggy cereal. Um, so yeah, I take some odd parts that you may not need like uh, beef tripe, uh, which isn't really for human consumption. Um, I guess you, you can. Um, you can eat it, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's for, that's for the dog. Uh, the last thing I'll say for right now is that this way of eating seems to be super in line with Vanu, uh, as well as a boogaloo uh, shit hits the fan scenario. Uh, if I had to, I could hunt whatever I really needed out of the wilderness uh, surrounding the homestead, in addition to ample opportunities for fishing. And uh, I wouldn't have to struggle to try and find nuts, berries, and other edible, forageable plants that might not even replenish the caloric demand uh, needed to find them in the first place. And uh, obviously that's assuming I have the skills to forage um, which I, I don't. <laughs> and if you think back to, uh, to Rhea, whenever he talked about this, um, you know, even he and Roberto with, you know, uh, he was definitely much more proficient than I am, um, <laughs> at, uh, you know, wilderness Vanu. But yeah, they didn't even, they didn't even acquire, um, a, 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 a majority of their nutritional intake from foraging. So it's just not feasible. Um, it's just not feasible. And, you know, and, and, uh, um, and I'll just speak to, um, in terms of nature here, I'm not talking, I'm not, you know, talking in terms of favoring a diet, but, um, in terms of nature, um, like I said, for here in Southern Illinois, I don't know how someone would do, um, a year round vegetable or, you know, like a vegetarian or fruitarian diet. Um, I, I, I really don't know because, uh, from say October to, uh, to basically April or May, there wouldn't really be, um, you, you could find some forageables, but as far as enough to, to, uh, to sustain you, um, I, I really don't think so. Um, unless there was, you know, some self-sufficiency and some prepping and canning and things of that nature. So, um, I mean, yeah, depending on where someone lives, maybe that'd be optimal, you know, maybe around the equator, uh, that, that'd be realistic, but, um, especially, uh, you know, up uh, here in Southern Illinois and even further North, um, you know, just nat- naturally speaking, it's just not practical. Um, it's just not, not really possible. Um, it's not without, uh, you know, having ample access to a grocery store, um, to go grab, uh, you know, fresh fruits from Argentina or wherever the hell they came from on a plane. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, uh, things are going great, um, and uh, you know my Vani life is getting more and more optimized. Uh, but as always, uh, you know Vani was yours for the making, and our evolutionary diets may differ slightly. Um, I just figured I'd share my two satoshis uh, for those that may benefit. Um, so yeah, that's all I have for you. Check out Liberty Intertech Publications for books on anarchy, Vanu, and self-liberation. Uh, if you haven't already, please consider snacking a copy of my book, Vanu, A Strategy for Self-Liberation. Uh, I continually realize that I never promote my own book. Um, it's, it's, I, I think about it, you know, every couple months, like, wow, you know, I, sh- I should probably put up a post and tell people I you know, wrote a book at some point or mention a podcast. Um, so yeah, there we go. Um, the audiobook will be coming out soon, uh, narrated, narrated in part by yours truly, uh, and in part, uh, by Nick Irwin from the dank pod stash. Uh, the website is libertarianattack.com, and remember, until further notice, all orders placed there will come with a free copy of Carrie Thornley's The Permanent Floating Voluntary Society. Uh, again, website's libertarianattack.com. Please enjoy this teaser of Second Round Book on Strategy, narrated by Silas S. Soul. Until next time. The Second Realm Book on Strategy By Smuggler and XYZ Published by Liberty Under Attack Publications Narrated by Silas S. Soul Forward
A common thread throughout anarchism and or libertarianism is the eventual arrival at some utopian, free society. The idea is that if, quote-unquote, we focus, quote-unquote, our efforts on educating individuals on economics, morality, history, etc., quote-unquote, we can hit critical mass, abolish the state, and live happily ever after. While this, quote-unquote, free world is a pipe dream, it doesn't mean that self-liberators can't set up pockets of freedom in the here and now, despite the existence of the state. These respites from first-realm tyranny are called second realms. In Second Realm, Book on Strategy, Smuggler and XYZ build upon the framework laid by the likes of Samuel Edward Konkin III, Hakim Bey, and many anonymous cyberpunks. Agora's Temporary and or Permanent Autonomous Zones, Digital Freedom and or Privacy, respectively. But the truly unique thing these authors were able to formulate was the merging of the physical and digital realms. Have you ever been to a freedom festival? Visited a deep web IRC chat? Used I2P, the Internet Invisibility Project? If so, you've seen firsthand the beauty and freedom found within these protected spaces. But you might want to start thinking bigger. Herein, the authors begin by discussing the underlying philosophy and the motivation for this particular freedom strategy. Terms are defined and elaborated upon. They tell you how to practically create second realms everywhere. You'll learn about high and low tech tools that can be used to maintain these realms going into the future, how to facilitate trade between the two realms, and more. I'd like to provide one disclaimer before turning you over to this book on strategy, though. It's likely that you are already an anarchist looking for solutions. If that's the case, I sincerely believe you will find value in what you are about to read. If not, however, I would highly recommend beginning your anarchist adventure elsewhere. This is not designed to be an introductory book. In summation, crypto-anarchy has delivered, quote-unquote, us, the tools necessary to build second realms in cyberspace. While that is a great feat for many reasons, it's important to remember that human beings are social creatures, and many individuals long for interaction in physical space and time. Smuggler, XYZ, and their predecessors have given quote-unquote us a great starting point.
it's time to start building. Shane Radliff, December 2018, The Vanu Podcast. Chapter 1 Crypto Anarchy, Tradecraft, Taz, and Counterculture. This is a booklet for people in search for liberty and who subscribe to a philosophy of personal, civil, and economic liberty through the absence of government in their lives, along with the presence of strong property rights. Among the varying philosophies that hold this view, the most noted is probably that of anarcho-capitalism, of both the Rothbardian and the Friedmanite flavor. The authors of this booklet subscribe to the former, and it is that perspective that should be taken into account to take the most value from this text. Thanks to Thomas C. May, Hakeem Bey, Murray Rothbard, J. Neil Shulman, and Samuel Edward Konkin III for inspiration and ideas to build on. We also thank the free and unashamed for asking us to write down our thoughts and for supporting us in doing so. While you remain a mystery to us, you seem to be a good mystery. About the Authors This book was written by Smuggler at staff.anarplex.net and XYZ. We are the sole people responsible. These are our thoughts. If this book helped you, gave you pleasure, or just new things to think about, please say thank you by sending us some Bitcoin. End of Chapter 1 Chapter 2 Motivation Anyone subscribing to a radical philosophy of liberty must face the pressing question of how to progress from our current condition of insufficient liberty to a society where individual liberty is respected. Several strategies for this change have been proposed, ranging from political participation, educating and convincing the masses, civil disobedience, secession, and counter-economics, to outright revolution. While these proposals all have some interesting aspects, they are very often naive or poorly informed as to what really shapes society. The fundamental flaw to most of these strategies, with a slight exception in the theory of counter-economics, is the reliance on mass change of social, cultural, and economic structures and people in general. It has often been overlooked by voluntarists 
that collective thinking dominates many of our personal decision-making processes, which is why most of these strategies err by the fallacy of big numbers. By this term, we mean the belief that we must wait for progress until a large number of people rally to the support of our cause. We disagree, and we think that waiting has been a mistake, and often chosen for the purpose of avoiding risks. We wish to minimize risk, but not to the point of inaction. Armies of supporters are however not to be expected. The reason for this should be accessible to economists and psychologists alike. Both production and parasitism are natural human strategies to satisfy personal desires. Both strategies appear naturally and are present within most people with the exceptions of idealists and moralists on one hand and outright sociopaths on the other. Both strategies can easily be seen in modern life, with parasitism becoming more profitable with every political intervention. Our current redistributive society moves property from producers to parasites as well as shifting decisions from the individual to the ruler. The ruler, of course, is held above all personal responsibility, recourse, or personal risk. A surprisingly large number of people in modern societies are in favor of the redistribution of property, sometimes knowingly, and sometimes merely because they regard the rules of the game more than the morals of the game. They see redistribution as the way of the world and work to get their share. Parasitism, where enforced by government, is easier than working. It provides a comparable level of consumption for less effort. In addition, it removes hundreds of daily decisions from an individual, along with the bad feelings of facing mistakes. It is sadly a truism that most people only want the freedom to be comfortable. Libertarian class theory describes two classes of people in society those that pay more taxes than they consume of public services, and those that consume more public services than they pay taxes. That is, taxpayers and tax feeders. What is underappreciated is the size of the second group. In most developing countries, Tax feeders make up far more than a third of the employed, from direct bureaucrats to industries living off public money or regulation. In many developed countries, tax feeders have approached or passed 
The massive creation of fiat currency has allowed governments to keep this unsustainable game going. So far. Millions of people profit from this arrangement and will fight to keep it going to the last moment. If one combines only these two motives for intervening government, redistribution of property, and shifting of decisions, an easy majority of people profit from the existence of such an institution. There are, however, additional motives for the existence of the state as a social organization. One is the identity-creating feeling of belonging to something, a natural and not always negative motivator for humans. This is regularly exploited by the state to assure support and to limit dissent. Another motive is the perception of risks and lost opportunities from a change from the current status quo to a new society solely based on voluntary interaction, contract, and optional law. People feel comfort in the current arrangement and don't want to endure the strain of adapting to a new situation. This is understandable. The reflexive questions that are instantly asked are ones like these. Who will care for the sick, the old, the children, the environment? Who will build the roads, maintain security, license the doctors, and make sure the trains will be on time? These questions are often brushed away with a correct, but superficial reply of the market. However, this reply is not sufficient. The market does not take care of anything. It is merely a system of interaction and exchange. People find solutions to human problems. Entrepreneurs spend time and effort to find solutions others will be willing to trade for, and, if they are correct, profit thereby. Without new supplies to these services, which are generally forbidden by force under the current regimes, the perception of risk cannot be sufficiently countered. Certainly not for someone who is agitatedly asking the question so that the frightening possibility of a new human arrangement may be quickly dismissed. The third motive against the change to a voluntary society is the perceived cost of change itself. Aside from adapting to new ways of living, any change will find resistance and risk of failure ranging from the loss of money or time to losing life or liberty itself. Very few people are willing to take these risks, and many would be needed to achieve any meaningful change in an entire society. After all, liberty is costly.
The reasonable conclusion, then, is to cease hoping for large numbers of supporters and instead to focus on strategies that make individual liberty possible in the current situation. But, while we have ceased hoping for massive events to bring liberty to us, we have not given up hope for liberty. We have merely faced the fact that we'll have to build it brick by brick, for ourselves, without waiting for support or permission. Fortunately, these methods allow us to model a voluntary society for those less willing to take the risks, so that a formally intellectual concept can be shown to them in real life, here and now, to see and feel with no waiting. This does not require many like-minded people. The truth is that waiting for consent keeps us from acting. And acting allows us to test and modify our theories in the real world, which is the only way they will ever reach their most useful forms. Another grave error is often found in the strategic thinking of anarcho-capitalists and voluntarists. Since anarcho-capitalism is fundamentally an individual philosophy, its adherents are usually staunchly opposed to any notion of collectivism. While in general they are correct, they miss important distinctions in their vehemence. Collectivism's main tenet is the submission of the individual to the collective, without the individual's express consent. This includes as much as the individual stepping back, or even being scapegoated, for the good of the collective, and the identity of the individual being described chiefly through the terms of the group. It is critical to emphasize two important aspects of this concept. First, any membership in a collective does not depend on the express decision of the individual member. He is either forced to be part of it, or at least he is forced to stay part of it after joining. Second, the identity aspects of a collective are irrelevant in almost all meaningful situations, or simply superficial beyond meaning. We have all seen this in so many forms that it hardly needs a great deal of explanation. What is sometimes underappreciated, however, is the possibility of collective action by consent. Voluntarists and like-minded people have often gone too far in throwing out any kind of social grouping, especially those with the ability to establish identity or culture. It has often been overlooked that humans often seek out terms and groups that provide them with a means of belonging to something, as well as being someone not by some magical means of the group itself, 
but because the group is composed of humans that already belong or are. Group relationships provide a base for forming a culture of common symbols, meanings, ethics, and relationships. These are useful, and maybe even necessary, for human social interaction and life. Furthermore, these groups can form larger societies that provide common institutions, reflect relationships, and simplify interdependencies and allegiances. This leads to increased stability and efficiency of interaction, trade, and communication, as well as positive identity-establishing functions and more coherent relationships with people outside this society. It must be emphasized, however, that these positive functions of society can only be achieved in groups of voluntary, individually consenting, associations with clear and easy exit options. The useful functions of such groups of voluntary associations nourish a culture of liberty, and the forming of a society of free people increases the attractiveness of anarcho-capitalism by decreasing its image of coldness, providing a common narrative, and establishing a base for voluntary loyalty and allegiance. These positive aspects open new options to solve some of the problems we face. Enforcement of agreements, streamlining of trust relationships, reputation, and mutual aid, just to name a few. By learning from methods found in many primitive, anarchistic societies. Conclusion a strategy for the implementation of liberty must be built on three ideas. 1. It is necessary to achieve individual liberty in all aspects, economical, personal, and civil, with only a very small subset of the total population. Liberty should be assumed to be a minority position that is actively opposed by some and passively ignored by most. If it ever becomes more, we'll have no trouble adapting. 2. All notions of the homogeneity of society, change of mainstream opinion, and universal integrity of a population must be abandoned. 3 we must form a culture and society of liberty, or at least take first steps towards this goal and nourish attempts to accomplish a cultural secession from the mainstream society that allows us to form and protect institutions of social interaction and relationships. End of Chapter 2 Chapter 3 Introduction It is rather challenging to write a text about strategy that is both practical and refreshing. Our purpose is to inspire thought, not so much to create a final blueprint. 
This little book has one purpose to prepare you for reasonable and effective actions. If you read this but do not act, no matter how much you talk and write, this book has utterly failed. Many technologies and methods described in this text already exist and have been tested in real life. Others await implementation. We have been heavily inspired by structures, methods, and technologies found with other groups facing the same challenges. This includes organized crime groups like the Triads, Mafia, and Yakuza. Our borrowing from them should, obviously, not be understood as an endorsement. Also, we borrow from various ideas on freedom that came before us, most notably Crypto Anarchy by T.C. May, Taz by Hakim Bey, as well as Counter Economics by Samuel Edward Konkin III. This is a strategy for risk takers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. Both the risks and the expected rewards are great. In plain terms, this is not for boys. It is for men. Facing reality is required. Change is created by people with courage, not by the timid who usually follow behind and clamor for credit after all the battles have been fought. One more thing. The people of courage almost always have the most fun. Enjoy. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 First Steps to Strategy The first step in formulating a strategy is to achieve clarity about the objectives, means of engagement, obstacles, and resources at our disposal. These four components are interdependent and some of them are subject to constant change, particularly obstacles and resources. Objectives are what we hope to accomplish. In this case, it is our personal, individual, and exclusive participation in society where the only legitimate foundation for all interpersonal interaction is that of voluntary agreement. It is a personal participation because we, as physical, mental, and moral beings, partake in it with all our aspects, not just in some abstract sense. It is an individual participation because every member of such a society must decide for himself whether to partake in it or not. It is exclusive because we prefer to live as part of a voluntary society 
and not as part of a coercive society. Means of engagement are the abstract rules that govern our actions in order to achieve our objectives. What actions are permissible and which should be avoided? Since our struggle is an ethical one, our means should be in unison with our objectives, namely, to refrain from all non-voluntary interactions. This means that the resources we employ must only be those of our own property, that we abstain from fraud, limit the impact on uninvolved parties, and that we refrain from any violence that is not in self-defense. Since the claim of self-defense is often abused, another rule should be included as a guideline. To stay away from sources of conflict where we can be falsely accused and to avoid points of conflict where our opponents are likely to attack, requiring violence on our part. Before we look at the obstacles we face, some notes on our resources will be useful. From our rules of engagement, we are limited to our bodies, property, and time in achieving our objectives. This puts us in a less fortunate position than our opponents, who can command what they do not own, which is exactly what we are working against. Watering down our rules of engagement in this area would thus result into a weakening of our objectives or even lead to missing them entirely. This has been the case with several historic attempts to create liberty which led to a replacement of the rulers, but not the system of rule, or that used terror to stabilize the new order. However, using our own resources also allows us to be more flexible in their application, since we do not require processes of command and obedience to distribute them. This frees us from complexity and allows for the rapid implementation of tactics. So, we can expect to be more adaptable than our opponents, so long as we do not introduce new distribution schemes for resources and actions. We can, and should, focus on forming an entrepreneurial environment for tactics and let them refine each other in the marketplace. But, for the marketplace to work, we must be prepared to reward entrepreneurs for their superior products and services, not just through respect, but also with tangible material considerations, money, etc. Contrary to our opponents, our strategy employs the time-tested roles of entrepreneurs, customers, and investors. This is fundamental because it creates a situation in which people who are unable to contribute through the supply of services or products are able to contribute through the investment of time or money in products that will help us all achieve our objectives, and maybe even profit.
What are the obstacles we face? This is an area of much confusion and disagreement. Let us explore this in some depth. Obstacles We have already concluded that our objectives are opposed by a majority of the population as well as the ruling class. It is, however, necessary to analyze the specific methods by which our objectives are opposed and which means are employed to keep us from reaching our goals. Humans are spatial, social, and cooperative beings. We occupy space that no other spatial thing can occupy at the same time. Our bodies need to be somewhere. They need to be sustained. We are also social because we require interaction with other humans. We want to communicate. We want to learn from each other. And we want to procreate. While we are the only thing in the space we occupy, we also need to interact, be viewed, and view other humans around us. We define and achieve social status through interaction and observation and use it to find out how to prevent conflict, to solve conflict when it occurs, to create institutions of interaction and symbols to identify friends and foes, and to optimize our communication. Since we also live in a scarce world and cannot do every necessary thing alone, we also engage in cooperation, specialization, and trade. These characteristics of human life constitute the frame for most things we do but also provide the means for our opponents to keep us in chains. Throughout history, those that oppose liberty have developed and cultivated a complex and refined science on how to keep populations under control. We are not referring to a secretive group of social planners, but a set of techniques that are shared not only by the rulers, but by those parts of a society that profit from coercion and the comfort it brings. To understand this science, it is beneficial to look at how our various aspects, spatial, social, and cooperative, are exploited. It is necessary to understand that the state and the systems of the world are not spatial. Though the state claims geographic control, the state itself cannot occupy any of it, since it is not a physical entity. It is a social concept of control. The only way the state can interact with the spatial is through its agents and proponents as well as anyone conditioned to represent or call for it. It is individual humans that must intrude into another individual's space to deliver any kind of force, whether it be direct or indirect. 
when we are not applying force, the only other option for the state to act within space is through its agents, to observe or surveil the space of others. Cultural norms of the mainstream society and most of its subcultures reward pro-state behavior while they punish non-state behavior. While this is not yet true for all parts of the cultural code, it is increasing, often without us noticing it. There are numerous examples for this. The method most often suggested for problem-solving is to call the police, to always obey the state authority, to use convenient methods of payment, credit cards, etc., to make every payment an official legal tender, national currency, get a good job, petition your representatives, work within the system, pay your fair share of taxes, adhere to the current definition of political correctness, or simply to not make trouble. All of these codes of conduct focus on a single goal, to integrate into a society that is led, organized, and enabled by the state. Alternate views are quickly labeled a waste of time, not practical, unrealistic, utopian, eccentric, or even treasonous. Interwoven with these codes are values that most people are accustomed to use when judging their neighbors. While many soldiers today partake in wars that should realistically be called unjust and therefore a crime, they are not met with disgust for choosing this career. Policemen that enforce unethical laws, often with unethical methods, are not excluded from our comradeship, but instead called our finest. Tax collectors that objectively conduct armed robbery are not called out, but identified as doing their job. In the end, everyone is just following orders. In addition, a wide variety of symbols are used to identify people as being respectable. Some of these are styles of clothing, status symbols, licenses, membership cards, use of language, and laughing at the right time. Together, these codes, values, and symbols form societal expectations and identities, the function of culture, and any fundamental variation from them is met with rejection or even outright hostility. It is very important to understand that these codes, values, and symbols are highly interconnected and form an integrated body of culture which makes it very hard to successfully break out of this scheme. If we change only parts of it, it is easy to be dragged back into the old ways by many parts that are still tied to the larger culture. Ideally, this need not be so, but as a practical matter, it usually is.
However, breaking away from mainstream culture and its various subcultures leaves the dissenter as a tolerated eccentric at best or an unwanted troublemaker at worst. But it also puts the individual in the position of having no social integration, which is required by most of us simply for mental survival. But worse than this is being removed from cooperative functions of society. Many institutions of our society were originally created to streamline cooperation between individuals. Since then, however, they have been taken over and remodeled to support state dominion. These institutions are numerous, and we will only list the most important ones here. Money and the banking systems, property titles, identity, papers, passports, etc., licenses, regulations, and insurance, law enforcement and security, legal systems, courts, correction, and punishment, education and media, communication, energy, and transportation networks, and charity, now welfare. Each of these institutions and services are tightly controlled by the state. Access and provision are limited to those that are not perceived as enemies of the system and those that follow cultural norms. These systems are necessary for successful cooperation between individuals to satisfy the needs they cannot satisfy alone. It is by regulation, licensing, and cultural dominance that access to, and the provision of, these institutions and services is regulated, always with a tight integration of surveillance and punishment. Though there are always cracks in this control, that allow people to slip through, the main occupation for legislators and bureaucrats appears to search for and close those cracks, to create a system in which these institutions, combined with a matching culture, provide a totalitarian toolset and mold each individual under the dominance of the state system. Cultural codes Values, symbols, and systems and institutions of cooperation enable the state to become a spatial entity through its agents, proponents, and dependents. Culture forms the base for active consent, while access control of institutions creates a soft force to keep the subjects in line. The benefits of compliance outweigh the risks of dissent. This supplies the state with the individual people that project its force into the spatial realm through their actions. This starts with simple social exclusion of dissenters, continues with snitching and inviting state agents into situations where they are unwanted, 
and ends by using force against the centers. The interwoven aspects of culture, institutions, profits from redistribution, and the longing for stability from the foundation of the power of states and ensures lasting consent, both passive and active, for this system of domination. We call the totality of this system the First Realm. Please keep in mind that we are here talking about the system of domination, not the specific implementation or parties running it. Thus far, attempts to change this system have, at most, changed the faces running the show, but have never fundamentally changed the game. Although we may call the population support for this system unethical, misguided, stupid, or even evil, it is nevertheless a reality that must be faced clearly. Our challenge is of an enormous magnitude. This is why previous strategies have failed to achieve much lasting change. Conclusions We can thus draw the following conclusions. 1. Spatial We have to find or create territory, space, in which no agent, proponent, or dependent of the state is present or can deliver force in any direct manner. With the exception of outer space, and maybe the high seas, it is unlikely that any territory that is not preoccupied by agents of the state can currently be found. There is no point in trying to create such a territory. 2. Spatial We have to protect and defend the territory of liberty against state surveillance. Surveillance is the precursor to force, whether direct or indirect. Otherwise, what purpose does it have? 3. Spatial We must minimize the need of free men to enter territory that is occupied by agents of the state or surveilled by them. 4. Institutional. It is required to form independent systems of cooperation that are formed on the ethics of liberty and that are not dependent upon, or connected to, institutions of control, masquerading as institutions of cooperation. 5. Institutional. We cannot rely on any state-dominated institution to form the basis of our interactions or our own systems. 6. Institutional Any interaction with state-controlled institutions must happen by proxy and with the utmost separation to limit any damage that can and will occur. 7. Cultural. 
We need to create and nurture our own culture based on the values defined by the ethics of liberty. 8. Cultural Our culture cannot be simply sub- or counterculture to the state-dominated mainstream culture. It must be an independent counterculture. 9. Cultural We require our own cultural symbols for mutual recognition to optimize communication and social ordering, as well as to support separation from the culture of our opponents. 10. Cultural The cultural codes and norms of liberty must support both the integration and nurturing of free men and the exclusion of state agents. Our strategy for liberty is the creation of a culture of liberty, a society that occupies its own protected space and implements independent systems of cooperation. We need to create a second realm. This task may justly be seen as monumental and the stakes are high. However, it is most definitely attainable. Several groups have achieved these precise objectives in the past and were often able to sustain their systems for centuries. The only major difference between those successful cultural entrepreneurs and free men is that we are more restrained in our rules of engagement. Nonetheless, even this can be used as a lasting advantage. Anarchy is the free grouping of men into societies of their preference. End of Chapter 4 Chapter 5 The Second Realm After having defined the boundaries and the objectives of a necessary strategy, the creation of a second realm, it is time to look into implementation. Several past and existing groups serve as inspiration to us in imagining a future for free men. However, they should not serve as a blueprint, only as examples to learn from. We will have to do things no one has done before. As an inspirational excursion, let us look at several of these examples. Organized Crime Groups Everyone knows the Italian Mafia, the Yakuza, triads, and outlaw motorcycle gangs from news coverage. What is often overlooked is that these organizations are not simple chaotic gangs, but often exhibit a long history and their own kind of society. The Mafia, as an example, is primarily a loose-knit network of independent gangs that pay tribute to their dons and receive protection and their own conflict resolution system in return. 
their aim is to limit conflict within groups and not resort to violence when other means of conflict resolution are available. They operate their own title system of territories and markets. They provide services for communication and reputation. And they foster the division of labor through specialization. One could define the Mafia as an organized crime business association based on a shared ethical background. Similarly, the triads are built on ethnicity, Han Chinese, and sharing a cultural narrative, resistance to the Manchu rule. They have been around for centuries, mostly by establishing an integrated society and trying to limit their activities to inter-triad conflict, exploiting street criminals, and focusing on less public crime. A similar pattern of social narrative, ethnic focus, and well-controlled intervention into the public realm shows itself with the Yakuza. They even put a strong focus on being recognizable by the public. While the previous three examples cover older organizations, outlaw motorcycle gangs are a more recent phenomenon. They openly display their outlaw image as part of their culture, create their own social norms, and use their own form of justice. All of these previous examples share some characteristics in operation and organization that can serve as hints to what successful parallel structures need. First, they are all based on their own independent culture and values. They are not chaotic and lawless, but have their own laws that are often stricter and more conservative than mainstream culture. For example, the Yakuza forbid their members to partake in theft, the Mafia punishes members for adultery, and all of them take oaths and vocal contracts very seriously. Another common characteristic is that these groups usually try to limit violence to their own community instead of spreading chaos. This has two reasons. Obviously, this limits the attention of law enforcement and public opinion that could make their business harder, but these people also understand themselves as being part of their local community, which they often take effort to protect and help. This has the positive side effect of gaining public support within their territorial presence. Contrary to popular opinion, these groups are not hierarchical, command-and-control structures. Subgroups are often autonomous and do not follow top-down planning. Instead, they share part of their profit with the upper hierarchy in return for specialized services, investment, and justice provision. Often these groups have to answer to their leaders primarily for causing too much trouble, being too violent, or interfering with other subgroups' business. Apart from that, 
They are highly independent. The last commonality to point out is that these groups control locations like clubhouses, offices, restaurants, or similar places where they can meet and conduct their business outside of public view and which they protect against surprise raids or infiltration by round-the-clock staffing, alarms, posts, guards, and security technology. Surely, these groups conduct business that is highly unethical and employ methods that conflict with the rules of engagement we are limited to. Nevertheless, they also provide some hints for long-term stability of outlaw organizations. These are 1. They define and nurture their own parallel culture and society. 2. They follow a least intervention policy concerning outsiders, especially in the realm of violence. 3. Local autonomy for subgroups protects them against decapitation and maximizes their flexibility. 4. They create a positive image in their local community through acts of aid and relief. 5. Temporary autonomous locations provide them with protected spaces to conduct their business. These locations often exist long enough to justify them as semi-permanent. 6. Using specialization and division of labor, they create an internal market for the provision of common services required throughout their subgroups. 7. They all have a high focus on operating their own independent internal justice system and legal code. 8. Because of their outlaw nature, they have to maintain their own security and defense operations against other outlaw organizations that intrude on their turf or prove hostile. We can see that these groups are faced with similar problems to those we face, spatial, cultural, and institutional, and they have developed ways of meeting these challenges. Below, some of these solutions are explored in detail and adapted to our specific obstacles, resources, and rules of engagement. Furthermore, some additional and necessary components for Second Realm are presented. Together, these form the foundation of a workable model for the parallel society we require. End of Chapter 5 You've just heard a teaser of Second Realm, Book on Strategy by Smuggler and XYZ, narrated by Silas S. Soul. To be notified of the audiobook release, please visit LibertyNerdTac.com and sign up for LUA Pub email updates. Yeah.